If you have your Bibles, please open it to Genesis chapter 3. First of all, before we start, I'd like to say welcome back. It's good to be back here. If you guys were with us last week, last weekend, we were at a retreat, and uh, we had a, a treat. Austin Duncan came, and he preached on 1 Corinthians 13, and it was a convicting message, just to see how short our love is in relative to the infinite love that Christ has for us. And it was uh, convicting for me just to see like where I fall short and how I can uh, grow in, my, in the area of love and, and every aspect of that. And if you would like to listen to that message, it's up, it's up on our website. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I, would rec- I would highly recommend it. I think everything's up right now, so if you would like to hear it, it's, it's up for free. And uh, yeah, like I, as mentioned, this is like our first of our series. We're going to begin the series on why we believe what we believe. And I, I trust that most of you, if we were to ask you, do you believe in these normal doctrines of faith or the basic tenets, you would naturally say yes. You would say, yes, I agree that the Bible is inerrant. I believe that the, there's a trinity. I believe that the God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I believe in all of these doctrines that's, that you, if you're a member of the church, you agree to. But my, my concern and question is, would you be able to explain why you believe those doctrines? Would you be able to explain this to, say, a young believer or someone that's in the church that's new, new, new to the faith, and ask, why do you believe that there's going to be a second coming? Why do you believe that there is this thing called hell? We can objectively say yes, but it, it, to be able to articulate those truths from the scripture is... It, it, it requires you to really know God's word, to be able to, to explain it clearly to both young believers as well as just the most mature one, even to the skeptics and non, outside the church as well. And this message here, the first one, is on the inerrancy of Scripture. And I thought this would be a good starting point. One, because uh, on our doctrine on our doctrine of faith, that's, that's the first one. But I also think it's a good starting point because this is really the first domino if you were to line up all the do- doctrines up in one row, and like little dominoes, if you tip the first one, then everything falls apart. The inerrancy of Scripture is, is crucial for us as Christians because it is, it is the doctrine that everything kind of builds upon. If you don't believe that God's Word is really God's Word, then you wouldn't believe in things like the Gospel or everything else. And I wanted to start with this, and with this is really for us to be equipped. Part of my job as a pastor is to equip us so that we can not only defend our faith against cults or even atheists or people outside the church, but also to equip us so that we can, in the moments of doubt, that we're able to to look to God's word and be encouraged by it. I hope that this, this series will equip us and to edify us so that we can grow in our affections for the Lord. And with this doctrine of inerrancy of Scripture, this is a huge topic. In fact, every one of the topics that we're going to go through in the next 20-something weeks, they're really big and they're lofty. And they're, I mean, they're conferences over each one of these things. But we're just going to try to do a quick overview in hopes that you guys can be, have a better understanding of some of these doctrines. When it comes to the doctrines of, of inerrancy, I would argue that this is one of the most common arguments that you'll have with a non-Christian. In light of everything that you'll go against, if you, if you speak to a non-believer long enough, this is actually the one that they'll actually want to research on. This is the one that they'll, they'll think through the most, 
This is the one that they will research and, and, and try to find arguments against the Christians and why the Bible is not true. And for some, this is a challenge for Christians. Unfortunately, many have fallen away from the faith because they're unable to answer some of these questions or opposition that's been brought up to them. And this is, again, this is, the fun, this is a really fundamental topic. And if it's rejected, it denies all objective truth. If a person denies the inerrancy of Scripture, everything about Christianity crumbles. This is why in your own life you must know for certain that our Bible is inerrant, infallible, and it's, it's God's word. And if you allow the outsider, the non-believer, the atheist, the agnostics, or even the other false religions to try and make you doubt God's word, inevitably you will leave the faith. There are many examples of that, many examples of how inerrancy or the denial of inerrancy shows up. When we look at liberal churches or liberal seminaries that fall to theological liberalism, it always begins with the denial that God's word is not inerrant. They always deny that the Bible is, is fallible. And oftentimes you see they start with like one verse. It's like one complicated verse uh, that they don't know how to answer. And over time they realize, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take this verse out. And from one verse it goes to one chapter. And then from one chapter it goes to one book. Then one book to one testimony. One testament and eventually it goes to the entire Bible. And it goes, and you can often see that when they start denying aspects of Scripture, their, their, mora, their morals fall as well. You can, if they see that God's Word is not true or not fallible, or if they, if they see God's Word as fallible, then inevitably their moral, their moral character will show it as well. And it goes from their mind to their actions, and then the church, eventually they'll deny all of Scripture that's why if you ever go to a, if you ever listen to liberal seminary professors or liberal pastors and they hear their sermons or their lectures, you'll, you'll find that they will, will they'll inevitably talk about how they feel about what God's word has to say as opposed to what God's word actually says. They're selective in their obedience and, choose, and they choose only what they like from God's words while rejecting passages that goes against their conscience. And the inverse is also true. If you look at all of the churches that are still around, that all the churches that have been faithful throughout the years, they, have, they hold to the inerrancy of Scripture. And I think the only shining example that I can think of in history that we were place went from theological liberal to conservative is, is the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Did you see that video that they posted out recently? It was like 25 years of Al Mohler being president. Have you guys seen that? Anyone seen that? There, okay, no one. Okay, well, there's this video that came out this week. It's like celebrating Al Mohler's 25 years of being the president there. And he, he speaks a little bit about how it all came about. Because around the time before he came on board, the, the whole seminary was super liberal. You know, it was, it was denying the, the inerrancy of God's word. It was denying that um, the parts of God's word is, uh, is, is applicable to us. And they, you know, they start doing all these weird stuff that are not in the Bible. And when they hired Moeller, he started firing everyone. Uh, he, started, like, cha- he started choosing people, that, men, uh, that would teach, that would hold to God's word highly, and then these would be, become the faculty. And it took them years and years for them to actually get to the point where they were, at one point they were conservative, then they became liberal, and then went going back to con- being conservative again. Denial of scripture eventually will, appear, will manifest itself also in the way that they live out their lives. 
when people deny scripture, inevitably it will impact their life. So not only the seminaries and, 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 and churches will fall away, but even in the person's own personal walk with the Lord. Oftentimes, whenever I speak with someone who has doubt with Christianity, who's maybe been walking in the faith for a long time, then all of a sudden there's like this doubt about God's word. It's, it's oftentimes it comes, it's a smokescreen to hide their own sin. Very rarely will you ever see someone actually has an intellectual disagreement with God's word. Oftentimes they will just make up all of these excuses on why God's word is not true and why they're doubting that God's word is actually true as a way to hide their own sin. And when people fall into sin, oftentimes they will attempt to deny scripture to soothe their conscience because they know God's word is pricking them. They know God's word is convicting them of sin. And as a way to kind of silence their conscience, they deny God's word altogether. Inevitably, this type of thinking not only leads a person to fall in their own life, but they will try to fall, make others fall as well. This is, again, our job as pastors and elders to guard the, guard the flock. Because even among the churches, there are sometimes wolves that will appear. They'll try to draw people away from the faith. And I've seen this in the past of my life. I've seen it even currently with people I know. And I, don't doubt, I have no doubt that it will happen again. It will continue happening until Christ returns. Lastly, though, in the way people, we see the people denying inerrancy appear through academics. The denial of inerrancy of scripture stems from the acceptance from the world. In just some historical context, after World War II, there was a desire, there's a bunch of German people that desired that they want to make the church and the world, like, kind of bridge a gap between the universities and the church. They want to make themselves, the church seem more attractive to the world. And there was hope that if, if there was a way that we can make the church seem more intellectual, that the world will accept them. In this attempt to try to appease the world, they led many to fall away from the faith because they deny the inerrancy of Scripture. Inerrancy is also attacked by people attempting to make the church be taken seriously by the world. They, they want to make sure that the world likes them. Inevitably, again... Doctrine gets compromised, and eventually they just deny all of Scripture altogether. Non-Christians will take time to try to study study on why the Bible is not true. And as Christians, we need to be prepared. Non-Christians may not study things like the end times. They may not study things like the Trinity. They may not study uh, soteriology, glorification. They may not study those doctrines. But when it comes to trying to figure out if God's word is true, they will study it really hard to try to disprove that God's word is indeed infallible. The denial of inerrancy of scripture can come from all angles and we must be ready. We understand that this is not new. I have you guys turn to Genesis chapter 3 for a reason. Because we see in Genesis chapter 3 the beginning of those denial of, of God's word happened when the serpents came in. Genesis 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? You notice that the serpent trying to deceive Eve. He's just like, is it any tree? And yet, look at verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. You can already see that there's this beginning of uh, a compromise because God did not say that they're not supposed to touch it. And yet, look at what the serpent said in verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, 
you surely will not die. And this is the beginning of that denial of God's word being infallible. The serpent is trying to convince Eve that what God is saying is not true, that everything that the Lord has said to them before that, up to that point is a lie. And we know just through the rest of the Bible that they failed and it affected everyone in humanity. The fall came because of one serpent, the devil, denying the inerrancy of God's word. The devil bended and twisted God's word so that people will think that God's word is not reliable. And as a Christian, we understand that this is not new to us. When we see all of these opposition from the world that's trying to cast doubt, it should not be new to us. Because it's not. This is the, the devil's scheme. He's a liar from the beginning. So why does this matter? Why does this doctrine matter to us? I, I believe it matters so that we can have complete confidence in God's word. If you know this doctrine well, you can be completely confident that every single book in the Bible is inspired by God and is for our edification. This doctrine matters so you can trust in God's word completely without any doubt. And as we go through some of these reasons, my hope is not that you only become sure of God's word in your own life, but that you'll be equipped to go and share the gospel and, and draw other people to Christ as well. That you can speak boldly and confidently because this is God's word. So how do we know that the Bible is inerrant? How do we know that we can that this is truly God's word so we can speak boldly into the lives of others and even to our own hearts? Well, there's three reasons. First, because the Bible said so. That's obvious. Uh, and it seems obvious because it's often dismissed. If you ever have been to like debate classes or ever argue with some, with some philosophical debate, oftentimes you hear something like this. You cannot use that because it's a circular argument. You can't use that because it's a circular argument. Now, ironically and even hypocritically, that statement itself is a circular argument. The reality is that every argument in the world is circular. There's no such thing as an argument, a theory, or truth claim that is not circular. Every argument begins with a premise, a hypothesis, a theory, a presupposition, assertion, and then it proceeds to use evidence to find and prove that the original claim is true. And in the end, it should land in the same starting point. If you, I've been listening to this podcast on, on these like trials and, and they, they explain how like, well, this person is innocent or this person is guilty. They, they begin with that. Is this individual guilty? And they say, yes, this person is guilty. And here's all of our evidence that proves that this person is guilty. Or if this person is innocent, here's all of the evidence that we have to do that we found to prove this person as innocent. If there is any argument that is not circular, it means that they haven't landed on a conclusion. It means that evidence are not clear, and that's okay. That just means that there's just uncertainty. But for everyone that tries to make a truth claim, it is circular. And as a Christian, you must embrace that reality. You must embrace the reality that we know God's word is true because God's word said is true. You have to take ownership of it. Just own it. Do not be bothered or troubled when, they, when, people, say, when people accuse us to use, using a circular argument. And because if we use a circular argument, therefore we can't be taken seriously. Again, every argument is circular. Every argument is circular. The starting point and the ending point are and must be the same. But is the middle where the evidence lies. The middle part is where the battle is at. That's where the war is at. The middle is where we can decide whether or not the evidence add up to the truth claims that's initially made, and as well as the conclusion. Do they match up? Do the evidence support the presupposition and the conclusion? 
If the evidence seems inconsistent and illogical, that means that the original claim is false and the conclusion cannot be reached. You understand that? If the evidence seems inconsistent and illogical, that means the original claim is false and the conclusion cannot be reached. Using that murder case of example, if someone says that I, he, he's innocent, this person is, 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 is innocent. And the person claims that, but they found photographic evidence, they found his DNA everywhere, they have multiple eyewitnesses accounts, and they give us all of these other evidence that prove that this person is guilty. Then you can logically conclude, based on the evidence, that this person is not innocent. And the initial truth claim that the person is innocent is false. And the conclusion cannot be reached based on the evidence presented because the evidence do not add up to those claims. And we understand that even with, well, I'll use another example, Mormonism. Mormonism claims that their book is inerrant. They claim that they have the same claims that we have. They claim that, oh, our, our book is inspired by God. Our book is inerrant. Our book is infallible. But that's their truth claim. Their truth claim initially is that Mormonism, the Book of Mormon, is the book that it has is infallible and is a word of God. Now I'm going to prove to you that that's not the case, both in terms of what's inside the Book of Mormon and outside. Within the Book of Mormon, there is a, there's in, in Alma chapter 9, it talks about how Jesus, it explains where Jesus is born. Now in the Old and the New Testament, it explains that Jesus is born in, you can speak, Bethlehem, right? Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We have songs about that. And I've asked Mormons before, like, where is Jesus born? They will say Bethlehem. But in the Book of Mormon, in Alma chapter 9, it says that Jesus was born in Jerusalem, the land of our fathers. And I remember asking them, why is this the case? How is it the Old Testament says he's from Bethlehem? The New Testament affirms that there's a virgin birth in Bethlehem. Why is it that in the Book of Mormon it says Jerusalem? And the argument is like, well, Jerusalem and Bethlehem are actually the same place. It's like, no, it's not. That's like saying Oakland and San Francisco are the same place. It's not the same place. I know. I've been, I mean, I live in both places before. It's not the same place. One place is super ghetto. Another place is super colorful. Two completely different places. If I was, if I was a Mormon, what I would have done, and even in the, book, in the beginning of the Book of Mormon, it has this disclaimer that things were edited. I would edit that part and say, oh, the land of Israel. Because that's, that's broad enough so that you can at least make that claim that, okay, it's the same land. Right? If they say, oh, the land of Israel, then okay, I guess Bethlehem and Jerusalem could be somewhere in the middle, or in the equivalent of the Bay Area thing would be like, oh, yeah, he's born in the Bay Area, as opposed to saying he's born in Oakland or San Francisco. That's the internal, internal text that, uh, that goes against, that proves that what they're saying doesn't add up. Another example is that in the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith claimed that the original people, that came, the original Native Americans were Jews that came into America, and there were evidence that that's not the case because they, they dug up some old Native American, Indian bones and then they did some those genetic testing things and there's no trace of the Jewish blood or DNA in them. And then they also claimed that there were elephants and horses. And if you know anything about animals, you know that horses are not, horse and elephant are not originally from America. Horses are from Spain. Elephants are from Africa. So when Joseph Smith talked talk about all of these animals, he's just actually talking about what he's seeing in the present time. Excuse me, in the present time. So there's both external evidence and internal evidence that the Book of Mormon is false. And those who believe that the Book of Mormon is true needs to repent because even internal evidence and external things prove that the Book of Mormon is false. I hope a Mormon does hear this, but, you know, whatever. (laughs) When it comes to the Bible, though, when it comes to Scripture, both internal within the Bible and even reality outside of the Bible proves that God's Word is true. 
everything lines up. Everything from inside to God's word is consistent, and everything outside of the Bible is also consistent to what the Bible claims to be true. And this is a great act of grace for us uh, because the Lord has provided both internal and external as a way for us to know him. Nothing in the Bible contradicts itself, nothing in the Bible is illogical, and nothing in the Bible is missing. We have all that we need within the Bible to conclude that the Bible is absolutely true. Everything adds up, everything is connected, and everything is present in God's word to give us absolute assurance that this is God's word, and it is completely reliable. So now we looked at the first claim, which is because the Bible said so. Second one, second point. Answer within the Bible. Answers from within the Bible. I had you guys open to Genesis 3. Now I'm going to ask you to go over to Exodus chapter 3. As you're turning there, the Bible claims that God has used many people in the past to speak his word. In Hebrews 1, it talks about how the prophets of old were used by God to speak um, his claims and everything that he wants the people to be. Paul even claims in Colossians 1.25, that everything that he writes is from the Lord. Colossians 1.25 reads, Of this church I was made a minister according to stewardship God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Paul also explained this in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. For this reason we are uh, we are constantly, th- for this reason we also constantly thank God that we, that when you receive the word of God which you heard from us, you accept it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believes. The Bible itself claims that every aspect of God's word is inerrant and infallible. In some ways, this section of the message should settle every argument. We have one more point after this, but this second point should be the one that if you just, if you just mastered this point, that you should settle everything else. So how do we first know that the Bible itself is inerrant, we're going to prove it within the Bible. Again, this is a huge topic, and there are plenty of other verses that ties into the same argument. But I'm just going to choose a selective one and moving towards throughout the Old Testament. So if you can't flip it, flip to those pages or verses quickly, just, you can just write it down and look it up later. But we're going to first find answers for, for inerrancy within the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we know that the books that we have are written by men that God spoke directly to. The Old Testament also records prophetic speech that is from God. Now, the book of Exodus is, is, is you know, obviously happens after Genesis. And it's a book that begins with the Israelites that were stuck in Egypt. You know, they, were, they grew in population to the point where the Egyptians got scared and they began persecuting them. And over time, uh, they, Moses was spared by God's mercy, and he was used by God to go and, and leave for, uh, Egypt for 40 years and come back. But before he left, he, was supposed to, he, he encounters the Lord in a burning bush. And this is supposed to show that who is this God that, that, that he worships. In Exodus 3, we'll start from verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the son of the, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial name to all generations. See, at this point, God is telling Moses that everything that I'm telling you, 
you need to go and tell the Israelites. Everything that I'm saying to you is exactly what God wants. He's just tracing it all the way back to Genesis. And he's telling Moses that everything I'm telling you, you must tell the Israelites. And we know in the book of, uh, book of Exodus, he, Moses gets scared, so he gets Aaron to go and, and be kind of like a mouthpiece. And it was like a picture between God and Moses as shown in Moses and Aaron. We get to the book of Le- Leviticus, the next book over. Let's flip over to Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. So after the Exodus, after the Lord rescues them, delivers them from the Egyptians, they're in the wilderness, and God tells them, gives them these commands, gives them these, this, this, this book here of Leviticus. And this book is designed so that they know what it takes for them to have a close relationship with God. God promised that there's going to be a land for them. He gives them this, this book of Leviticus to show what it takes for them to be a holy people. Leviticus gave instructions that enable God to live among his chosen people and enable close fellowship between the Israelites and God. And look at the very first verse of chapter 1. Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying... So this is God summoning Moses, and he's telling him what he needs to say. So Moses, this will be the mouthpiece of the Lord. The Israelites are, all, are supposed to look to, or to listen carefully to what Moses is saying, and, he, and Moses wrote all the things down of what God wants him to write. And they are to obey, not Moses, but they're to obey God, because God used Moses specifically as an instrument to, minister, to, to, to speak and communicate with his people. So when the Israelites rebel, they're not rebelling against Moses, they're rebelling against the Lord. And we see that rebellion, the book of Numbers, it's, it's the, the, the Israelites are in the wilderness, and they were in the wilderness for 40 years. And during those 40 years, they failed to do what God has instructed them in the book of Leviticus. They chose not to do it. They chose to complain and grumble, and they were not a holy people. And as a result, God destroyed that first generation. And when we get to the second generation, the second generation of Israelites, that's where we get the book of Deuteronomy. If you jump over to Deuteronomy chapter 6, Deuteronomy is the second, it's almost like the second, uh, like a second telling of, of the laws, of all the things that they must do. And Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9, this is the, the great Shema. This is the one that, there's, this is the, the famous passage that God instructs the Israelites to go and teach their kids and future generations how they are to obey. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontal on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. God instructs them that all the things that you've seen, you're supposed to teach them. Teach your future generation. Teach the children of Israel. And they're supposed to obey. And God has promised in the Old Testament that if they are faithful to God's word, to God's commandment, they will be blessing. And we know throughout from Joshua and all the way until the end of Second Chronicles, they failed. I mean, they, there are moments where they have faithfulness. There are moments where they show signs that they were obedient and moments of blessing. But as an overarching narrative, the Israelites fail to obey the Lord. In Psalm 119, 
verse. Psalm 118 is a book that is, talks, highlights the supremacy of God's word. In fact, the, this, the, God's word is the word, the word is used 24 times. And when we look at Psalm 119, verse 60, it speaks about how God's word is true and it is forever. So we see like everything from the psalmist, even like some of the other uh, poetry things, they're all linked together. The Torah, the first five books, explain what they're supposed to do. And then the, 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 what we call the history books, they, they show how they fail to do so. And they're recorded so that people, so future generations will know what happened to the Israelites. And the Psalms and everything else, and even when we get to Jeremiah, it speaks of those that have failed. Jeremiah 29, verse 1 of that chapter, we realize Jeremiah wrote the letters of the captives from Judah who were held in Babylon. In verse 4 of verse, chapter 29, he writes, Thus says the Lord, what Moses and Jeremiah both wrote down is not only words of their own prophet, but they are God's words. And since they were written as from the Lord, the Old Testament itself is naturally canonical. And again, we're moving through a lot of scripture, so again, this is, I know this is like, we'll like just you know, hold on, because I'm trying to land on this point. And Daniel 9, too, also explains that uh, there's this, it was built on the fact that everything that he's learned, everything that he's read, comes into fruition. Daniel 9, 2 speaks of this prophecy that Jeremiah talks about. Jeremiah 9, but we'll start from verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books of, num- of the numbers of the years, which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet. So the, what he is seeing, what he's, looking, what he's looking out into the world and what he's going on right now, he sees that there's a connection and a fulfillment of prophecy that shows up in the book of Jeremiah. So this is how the Old Testament people, all the Jews, how they made that connection. They see this common thread and they see how everything is pieced together. What Daniel was reading in the book of Jeremiah, he knows that it's happening in real life. And that's one reason why we believe God's word to be true, is that when they made prophecies in the past, it was fulfilled at the time of some of the Jews, and they saw it. So they wrote it all down, and they wrote it down because God told them to write it down. And during the time when Israel was brought back into the land, when we see Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra 9, 4 speaks of how the Old Testament was the words of the gods of Israel. In Ezra 7, 6, we see that Ezra left Babylon, and the text says that he was skilled in the law of Moses that God had given. All of the text that Ezra and Nehemiah had assumes that the entire Old Testament is true. And Nehemiah 8 gives us an example of how, or how he had to study God's word. That he, had, that he had some sort of written copy, and he was able to study it. And the Old Testament is used a tremendous amount even in the New Testament. Example, Jesus, when he was being tempted in the wilderness, he used God's word. Jesus would use a phrase like, Scripture says, or God says. And yet, we know in that garden situation that despite what the devil is trying to do, Jesus refused Satan by using God's word in its fullest and actual meaning. And in other words, even when the when time of Jesus, he was using the Old Testament. He was using a Greek translation of the Old Testament, and that translation was good enough for Jesus. So if the Old Testament was good enough for Jesus, then it's good enough for us as well. So why is this important? Why is the Old Testament so important for us today? Well, it's important because we know in our time that of all the book, of, the, of the two Testament that gets attacked, I would argue that the Old Testament gets attacked by non-Christians the most. 
the New Testaments get attacked by scholarly people, but the Old Testament get attacked by just general, like, like non-Christians. Because of the stuff that they read, they see all of these things about murder and God destroying people. And I would argue the reason why they hate the Old Testament so much is because the Old Testament really highlights the holiness of God. When we talk about Leviticus, that whole book shows you how holy God is and how far, how, how far men has fallen to meet that standard. The Old Testament is constantly being attacked, not just in modern times, but in the past as well. Throughout church history, we see that. There's like a whole bunch of people that said the, the Old Testament is this archaic book that does not need to be read or studied. We just need to study the New Testament. But it's important to know that without the Old Testament, many aspects of the New Testament will not make any sense. The book of Revelation will make zero sense to you if you do not understand the promises that are made in the Old Testament. All scripture are inspired by God, and they all work together in unison with one another. The Old Testament prophesies, the New Testament fulfills, and both the Old and New Testament have prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled. So to deny the Old Testament, you're really denying, you know, I mean, in reality, two-thirds of the entire Bible, and it's a big portion of scripture. Now that we looked at the Old Testament, let's look at the New Testament. In the New Testament, there's answers to how God's word is indeed inerrant. For example, when you look at John, the book of John, and John, this is a book that's supposed to explain the Lord's deity and, his, and that he is indeed fully man and fully God. In John chapter 8, verse 26, Jesus says, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he will send me, and he who sent me is true, and the things which I have heard from him, these I speak to the world. They, and the, the disciples, they did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. Verse 20, so Jesus, when you, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as my Father taught me. All the things that Jesus is telling them is what the Father taught them. Again, this is, again, the Old Testament type, type of motif or theme is that, like, God speaks to someone, and then they're supposed to write down. And in this case with Jesus, everything that the Father speaks, the Christ spoke perfectly. John 14, verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. John chapter 17, verse 7 to 8. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. And for the words which you, have, which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. Anything and everything that Jesus, well, not everything, but the things that God want, wanted you, the disciples to know, or, rem- or to remember, they wrote down in, in the Gospels. Jesus also promised that there will be more revelation. John 13 said the helper will come and they'll have more revelation. The Holy Spirit will reveal to them that there's all there is to know. But not only that, the, the Lord promised that the Holy Spirit will make them remember everything. John 14, 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you which is an amazing promise. I'm imagining what the, it was like speaking to these 11 apostles or even the followers, of, especially the 11 apostles. Like they can literally be like, what happened on the seventh month on the fourth day? And the Holy Spirit will enable them to remember. They were, they were supernaturally able to remember all of the things that Christ has done before them and for them. And 
this is a unique case. I know all the things that they've written down was only written down because they're limited by their space. In the end of John, John writes how, and there are also, also many other things which Jesus said, which if they were written in detail, I suppose they view the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. These disciples had so much more to say about our Savior, but they were limited in terms of the scrolls, in terms of time, in terms of just their, their own lifespan. But there's so many things that, were, that they saw and they remember and they couldn't write down. The Gospels are inspired by God and it's a fulfillment of Jesus' promise that one day, that they will remember everything. That's why we can trust the Gospels. You know, the reason is that God preserves his own words. We know the passages about how Jesus said not even one dot will be, will be done away with, that every single word of God will be fulfilled. The writers in the New Testament saw their own writings as inspired by God's word. I mentioned the First Corinthians passage by Paul, and even First Corinthians 11, before Paul speaks about the Lord's Supper, he began telling them that he received this from the Lord. Again, Paul was not one of the original disciples. So all the things that he learned was from the resurrected Christ, the glorified Christ, and he taught them all that he needed to know. All that Paul wrote down was from God himself. Do you see how that the very word of God that you hold in your laps, that you have on your phones, is really the word of God? And that is true. If we know that both the Old and New Testament are from God, how is your Bible reading time? If this is truly God's supernatural word, are you spending time meditating and studying his word? I mentioned Psalm 119 earlier. Psalm 119 talks about how we need to dwell. It's commanded that we meditate on the word daily, that we know it, that we cherish it, that we hide it in our hearts. Are you doing that? How is your Bible study? How is your, your personal devotion? How is your Bible memorization? God's word must be a priority in the life of a Christian. And we are commanded by the Bible itself to meditate and to study scripture. Now, these are all answers within the Bible. These are answers within the Bible. First, we looked at how, how do we know the Bible is true because the Bible said so. The second point is we know because from the answers inside the Bible. And lastly, we're going to look at answers from outside of the Bible. Answers from outside of the Bible. So I mentioned before about the Book of Mormon and how like, what they claimed in reality don't go hand in hand. Well, the Bible actually explained things about the world that people did not discover till later. We know in Leviticus talks about how the, the life is in the blood. At one point in medical history, people thought that if, one way to cure sickness is to bleed the person out. In Isaiah 40, verse 22, and as well as Proverbs 8, 27, it speaks about how the world was a sphere suspended in nothing. Before there were satellites, before people went out into the world and into the, like, other planets and looked at the earth, the Bible already made claims that the world was suspended in nothing. These are the scientific type things that, that was, was there that people didn't understand at the time. But then over time, when they studied through the scientific methods of different things, they concluded that the Bible is true. But I want to focus not so much on those things. I want to focus on just the Bible itself and how it was preserved over time. In this portion, at this point from here on out, I want us to talk about how God supernaturally preserved his word throughout history. That God, this living and active God, not only gave us God's word, God not only gave us his word, but he preserved it. Whether you see it as supernatural or providential, the Lord has kept, kept his word and preserved it. And then I believe that the reason why we have these external evidence 
is because it's just his, it's his, it's his mercy, it's his grace, it's his way to help us be encouraged. And we see this even in John chapter 20. You know, we know about the doubting Thomas. He was a guy that, that was with, with Jesus, but when Jesus rose from the dead, he did not believe it. And he asked that to see him, to physically touch Jesus, and Jesus told him to touch his side. And he did. He touched it, and then, that, then, he was, then he realized that, okay, yeah, Jesus is the Son of God. He has truly risen from the dead. But understand, though, that although there are these extra means of grace that's preserved for us, it is not necessary for salvation. In fact, with the, with regards to the doubting Thomas, John chapter 20, verse 29, Christ told him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see me, yet believed. You don't need these external uh, evidences to believe in God because the Bible itself has enough information for you to truly submit and to know him. It's not needed, but it is helpful. And throughout the centuries, there has been this particular group of people that have uh, studied and categorized and discovered and valued and published a tremendous amount of biblical copies, both of the Old and the New Testament. You know, there's just people out there that have devoted their life to find, finding old scrolls and, and, and papyrus and every little thing to, to point to the fact that the Bible that we have is completely accurate. And again, it is a grace of God to help those who wonder whether or not the Bible that we have is accurate. In fact, there are more copies of the Bible than, there, than any other manuscript in the world. Any other text that you can think of, the Bible outnumbers all of them. If you're in my church history class, I'm going to spoil a little bit when we get to the Middle Ages, but... For a while, apparently, people didn't believe that Muhammad was a real person. When the, when the Quran was written, they didn't know whether or not this was a real dude. It was just kind of like, oh, well, there was a guy named Muhammad telling us to do this, and just, here's a Quran that we need to follow. And the only reason why people knew that he existed was because other accounts from other accounts said, oh, yeah, there was this guy that we've seen. His name was Muhammad. So theoretically, there's a possibility that, according to some of these studies, that Muhammad may not have existed. And... We know, yeah, I think he, he did exist, but for Christ, there's way more. There's way more evidence of that. There's, there's like external church history writers that talked about the apostles and all the supernatural things that they're doing. They've, there's like eyewitnesses of, of even records of what, what the apostles did in the early his, church history and even what they spoke and it were lines up with what the Bible teaches. There are ex, there, just those ex, historical records let us know that what happened what, the, what Jesus promised was in terms of what, the, what was going to happen to the disciples was true. And we also have, again, a whole bunch of manuscripts to let us know that the Bible is indeed the same one that, that they had back then. No other literary work comes close to what the Bible has. So we'll just look at the Old Testament first. We'll go again to Old Testament and New Testament. In the Old Testament, uh, if we were to compare all of the oldest copies that we have the Old Testament, we find that indeed God has preserved his word not only within the text, but the physical text itself. If you compare to the 10th century scrolls, there's, there's this group of, it's called the Masoretics. Uh, there's this group of Jewish people that, that, were devoted, that devoted their lives to copying the, the Torah. They were copying, oh, not the Torah, the entire Old Testament. And oftentimes, they had this rule where if there was a mistake, if there was like a certain amount of mistake, they would just destroy it. Well, they wouldn't destroy it, they would just hide it and bury it uh, away because they feel that it's, it's corrupted and it's, and it's no longer valuable or they can't use it anymore. That's why sometimes there are like scrolls that have like, oh, why is there variations? It's because the original copiers messed up and they didn't want to destroy it because they felt it was too holy, but they wanted to keep preserved so they hid it somewhere. 
But if you compare those ones that were completed, the ones that the the Masoretes did, compared to the Septuagint, which is, again, the one that Jesus used, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and you compare some of the older manuscripts that goes all the way back to 325 A.D. So the Masoretic is about 10th century. The Septuagint, which is about 200 to 150 B.C., and to the oldest Old Testament manuscript, which is 325 A.D. If you compare all of these three different types of texts, and they're all like several hundred years apart, you will find that there is amazing consistency between all three. There is a consistency between all three of these types of scrolls. This speaks to the accuracy of those that are copying it. And I think in our time, we think, oh, the people will make mistakes. But that's not like them. Like back then, they, they, they knew that this is, they took their job seriously. They, they, even in Deuteronomy, when it talks about how the king needed to copy it, there will also be a priest that watches over him as he copies God's word. And they took it seriously. They knew that this is God's word, and they wanted to preserve it. Another example is of the Dead Sea Scrolls. In, in this, it was discovered in 1947 to 1956. And they were discovered, and they found out these date back all the way to 200 to 100 B.C. And after comparing those scrolls that they already have to the Dead Sea Scrolls, they find that there are only a very slight variance when discovered. And all the variations, none of them changed them any significant doctrine or theology. It didn't change anything, they didn't change scripture in any meaningful or significant way. This shows that God used amazing means to keep his word through the centuries, even if they were translated and copied, they share the same consistent message. By the time of the New Testament, it's already assumed that the Old Testament as a whole is canon and God's word. Now, when we get to the New Testament, there's, there's far more evidence. When we get to the New Testament, there is exponentially more evidence. There are about over 5,000 New Testament manuscripts ranging from the size of scrolls, which some of them are, are like complete books of the Bible. Other are just scraps and parts of it uh, that, that they find in like in like jars and, and just scraps, and they can, can combine everything together. There are even few fragments that date within 25 years of the original writings. These New Testament, New Testament critical scholars have generally concluded that 99% of the original writings were preserved, and that, and that 1% of those alternative readings or variants does, again, does not change any doctrine significantly. Even if you put all the variants passages in the Bible, if you put all the variants, in, and some of our Bibles actually have that, they're ones in brackets. If you, if you add everything together, the Bible's story, its theme, they all are the same. Now, there are questions that come up. How do we know that these were the chosen ones? Why, do we, why are these 20, uh, the Old Testament is already assumed. Okay, yeah, we believe that all the, the 39 of the Old Testament is, 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 is canon. But what about the New Testament? And then if you were in, the, again, my church history class, we kind of touched on it briefly. We call this canonicity. The idea that there are certain books that belong in the canon of Scripture while others are rejected. And these, the principle that they used back then to canonize the Bible is the same as what the Old Testament were. And the three principles were these. Is first, is, it, is, it, is this person someone that has seen God or is associated with someone that has been with God? Is someone that's seen God or someone, or, or, or someone that's been with God? I mean, seeing God meaning like the New Testament where they saw Jesus, so that's why the apostles counted. In the Old Testament, there were the prophets, right? They claimed that they, they hear God's word. And how they, made the, how they knew that the prophets and the apostles were truly from God is the second point, which is the consistency. The scrolls the, in the Old Testament, the prophecy in the New Testament, everything they write is consistent with one another. They're all connected. There are no contradictions within the Old and the New Testament. 
Early on when people were deciding the canon, there were some books that they were debating over because they couldn't, they couldn't decide whether or not this was consistent. And then when they studied it deeply, they realized, okay, this is not consistent because there's one verse here that goes against the Old Testament or there's one verse here that goes against the New Testament. So they removed those. Because if God is a God that doesn't change, then none of his words will change and everything will line up. And lastly, not only is that uh, you have to be someone that's seen God or associated with God, it has to be, and it has to be consistent. Third, it has to be pe- the people of God recognize that these were God's writing, the writings of God. And again, this applies to the Old Testament, Old, Old and the New Testament. In the New Testament, there were the disciples of the apostles that said, okay, yeah, like these were the writings that they taught us. These were the ones that, they, that we read in that church. These were the letters that we were uh, studying and meditating on. So then these people were associated, okay, this book, the, the book of Galatians, is, uh, is something that we use in the church. Uh, Colossians, Philippians, Ephesians, these are all people that, that knew of, of the apostles that said they can, they can testify that these were indeed God's word. Now, the question is, why don't we have the originals? Because we actually don't have the originals. All the manuscripts that we have are copies. But why don't we have the originals anymore? The answer is simple. It could, it's, it's lost because of sometimes through persecution. Through persecution, like they just burn. They probably burn some of the original ones. And some of them is because they, I think, I think uh, this is probably more obvious, like people read it so much that they just wore out. They just, they just passed it along within the church. They were studying it. They, they cherished it. And they copied it, and then the original one just get passed around some more, and eventually it gets, gets worn out. And we know that works in, in just a normal life, right? Like Drew and I like comics. He, 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 occasionally he'll give me comics to read. And then if I gave that comic to you and, you get, and, you, and it's passed around all around the church, by the time it gets back to me, it's going to be all shriveled and pages are ripped and coffee stains are all over it. It makes me feel, okay, I'll just discard this one, just get another one. You know, and when it comes to scripture, it's the same way. They... They, they study God's word, they meditate, and then it gets passed around within the church, and then eventually it just, it just wears and tears. That's why we don't have the original copies anymore. Which, again, it should be convicting to us that the original people studied the scripture diligently. You know, they, they knew that this was precious to them. They didn't take it for granted, because in the early church, they were persecuted. And any, any type of instruction that they got from the apostles... They, they memorized it. They did all that they can to make sure that they were dwelling and meditating on truth. Another one of those skeptics is like, well, what about the errors in scriptures? What about some of the, the things that don't line up? Well, there aren't any. And there, and, the, and there are some old manuscripts that seem to go against other manuscripts. And the reason why that is is what I mentioned. Sometimes people uh, maybe copied it wrong or they wrote a, a, like a name wrong or a number wrong. But again, none of these things change the whole Bible as a whole. There's no significant changes. And we look at some of these errors that they claim, like some of them are like, they spelled Nebuchadnezzar's name wrong, or it was like, in this, in one writing, it said it's 400, next one is like 300. You know, you can just deduce by context, like, which is it? Again, none of these, none of these errors, quote-unquote errors, have any significance in terms of the totality of Scripture. There are no, there are nothing in Scripture, and even with the scrolls itself, the ones that we find that are, that are, are different, that really changes the narrative. And you know, again, that shows us that God's preserved his word. There are indeed, there should be no doubt, and there must be no doubt in our minds that the Bible, both from within even out, and even outside, proves that the Bible is true. There's obviously more detail that we get into. This is, there's books and books that are written on how we can keep 
how do we know God's word is true, but I hope that this is helpful in terms of just giving you an overarching survey and a summary of why we can trust God's word. If God can preserve God's word back then, he will preserve it now and until he returns. This is how great our God, in, how great our God is. You can have absolute assurance and trust that when you open God's word, you're really reading his word. And when you need comfort, you, have no, you can go to God's word when he offers you those promises of comfort. You know that it is true. When, it's, when the scripture speaks of all the promises that we have in the future, where one day we'll be in heaven, you can have absolute certainty that this will come to pass. God's word is God's word, and it gives us clarity on who he is and what we must be. And let us cherish God's word and devote our lives in studying and reading and implying God's word daily. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your word and how you preserved it. You have given us more than enough evidence to know and to worship you. We ask forgiveness in moments we doubt your goodness and we doubt your word. Lord, help us with our unbelief in those, those moments of doubt. Lord, we know you're gracious enough that all we need is a mustard seed like faith. But Lord, we want to cherish your word more. We want to see your word as, as supernaturally inspired and supernaturally preserved through history. And may we be people that not just take, never take your word for granted. May we always study it, we cherish it, and apply it into our lives so that we can be pleasing to you. And Lord, I pray for those who, who do not know you, who are, who are doubting God's word, who are doubting your word, Lord, that you can soften their heart, use this message as a way to make them see that everything that they see in your word is indeed true to them. If they receive you as their savior, that they will have everlasting life. And if they reject you, that they will have eternal torment. Soften those, soften those people, have them changed and be regenerated so they can be joined into your kingdom, Lord. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.